Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. For 50 years, the Eisenhower Series College Program has been the U.S. Army War College's communication and outreach program designed to encourage dialogue on national security and other public policy issues between its students and the public. War College students generally travel across the country, speaking to college classes, voluntary organizations, think tanks, and other public forums. In our age of corona and social distancing, the ESCP has unfortunately had to scale back the travels of our students. Here at A Better Peace, however, we hope to help pick up the slack by providing extra opportunities for Eisenhower program participants to share their experience and insights with the broader public and to carry on this dialogue about civil-military relations. Today's podcast is the first of an intended series of such episodes. And so today's broad topic is the military and society, and our guests are three members of the U.S. Army War College class of 2020. Uh, and participants in the Eisenhower uh, Series College program. They are, uh, in order, Lieutenant Colonel Joe Buccino, who is an Army officer and a published poet, author of the play The Only Man Who Knew, and the host himself of the All-American Legacy podcast, whose last posting before coming to the War College was at the Pentagon. Lieutenant Colonel Vanessa Vargas is a logistics readiness officer in the United States Air Force who came to us from Joint Base Charleston. And Lieutenant Colonel Sam Smith is a military intelligence army officer with over 19 years of service and has served in a variety of assignments from tactical to strategic in various locations. Welcome to A Better Peace to the three of you. Good afternoon. Good to be here. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's great to have you here. So normally, uh, when if if we were if we were sitting in a panel in a public event for the Eisenhower program uh, in front of an audience, uh, I would have each of you each of you would have a speech prepared, a brief speech on a on a specific topic. And I want to uh, to get us started today by having each of you give us a a taste of what that speech would have been. And I'd like to go in alphabetical order. Um, and so I'd like to start with you, Joe Buccino. What was your what was your speech going to be? I talk about the Department of Defense's transgender policy approved by the Acting Secretary of Defense in March 2019, and I try to dispel some of the misinformation surrounding that policy. Specifically, the policy is not a ban on transgender Americans. It is focused solely on combat readiness, and it was informed by the professional medical establishment the entire purpose was to establish a consistent medical standard across the force. And so when we come we will come back to that this this larger issue of how does the the military uh, deal with changes in society and deal with the reality of a changing force. All right, thank you Joe. Um Sam, turning to you. Thanks. Uh so one of my speeches is about diversity and inclusion and so 
specifically uh, what I'm talking about is how to, how to love an organization that may not love you back, specifically on um, how to serve in the military by being LGBT member. I happen to be uh, out and gay. And so I talk about the challenges of diversity in the military and how diversity makes the force stronger and enriches policy and decision making. Um, talk about some of the struggles and is it okay to lie for the greater good and what uh, people out there can uh, do and help support and what they're currently facing. Uh, talk a little bit about secrecy and silence, the army and its importance, and then the role of who speaks up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Interesting. All right. Thank you, Sam. And Vianessa, what is, what is, your, what is your topic? So my topic is about reparations as an issue of national security and not as a uh, platform to promote reparations, but rather explain what they are and how the military has been a transformational vehicle for Black people in America, specifically the ones who are foundational to the United States of America and how the United States can go about unrealized ideals for these people who have absolutely served in every single war in the nation's history. The larger issue to consider is the military, of course, is built around a certain degree, literally, of uniformity. Uh, they make you wear uniforms. They give you ranks um, so that everybody's supposed to know exactly where they stand. But how does a force built on uniformity reflect a society that is itself uh, diverse? And how does one how does one provide within the service enough space for respect for diversity while also um, maintaining all of those the, the, those those other values of the service like so uh, unit cohesion like uh, uh, battle readiness? I'm curious how each of you uh, approach that question. I want to jumble it around a little bit. I want to go to you first, Sam, and ask you sort of how. First of all, how well has the army or the military in general, how well has the military handled uh, its opening up to allow for greater diversity? And how how did we get to where we are today? Let me first start off by saying the premise of really um, my topic is how to love an organization that may love, love you back. So sure. first and foremost, let me say that do I love this organization that has been my profession for over 19 years? The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Now, does it love me back? I think the jury's still out. And I think there are some who can say I've had a decent, successful career, but I have not got here on my own. So it loves me, I think, when it needs me. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying that to be disparaging. I'm saying because if you look at what happened after Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, was fully repealed. I was in Afghanistan at the time and I was working for, I'm a very senior military officer. And during this whole policy change and shift, um, a lot of individuals thought that there would be a seamless transition. However, I would argue that I think the military has been a vehicle, been a ve has been a vehicle in a good way for helping society transition. And so mm -hmm. normally you think about all the policies that the military has led, the society is about 10 to 20 years behind on average, whether, whether it's integration, whether it's, um, you know, we had segregation and now we have uh, don't ask, don't tell. And now we have transgender policy that Joe can talk specifically about. But the, the challenge has been diversity and inclusion and not being discriminated against for who you are. And we, we profess ourselves to be 
be authentic. And so my choice, I didn't really come out until 2004 to myself. Mm -hmm. And so that was about six years into me serving. And then, but I fully came out in the military, not really until 2016. So, um, and so I, I made that choice and I think it's, it's a choice for everybody, but the real important discussion is about the widening gap between military and society. And so if you look at the numbers, there's about 1.6 million people serving uh, in the military. And according to RAND published studies and other published reports, about 6% in the military identify as being LGBT. And so that's about 96,000 people um, who want to serve. And that's a lot of talent um, and capabilities. And so I would just leave you with this be before I can pass it off to one of my colleagues is if you just think about the modern show, The Voice, The Voice basically is a show that the judges turn around their chairs and they listen to the skill set of an individual without seeing what they look like. Um, and they base their judgment um, on what they hear and what they feel. And so I mm -hmm. think any LGBT member, any population wants to be judged on their merits. And I think that is, uh, that is something that our policies have moved towards is try to be, you know, inclusive and, and value diversity, but I think we still struggle with it. And so there is a lot uh, to be gained from policy and decision-making by our backgrounds, our experiences, and we have a lot to offer um, and share uh, based on our experiences in our environment. Indeed. Thank you, Sam. Well, so Joe, going back to you, you mentioned in your uh, in your brief summary, right, that trying to talk about the uh, transgender policy in the Army, that you feel as though it's been, uh, in the military, you feel as though it's been misunderstood. And I am curious, uh, how do you feel or how do you, uh, how would you say the policy as it's been announced, uh, how has it been understood by the public and how uh, how does the way the public understands it differ from what you think, think the policy was actually intended to do? One of the things I'm finding is that when I when we go out and do these Eisenhower presentations, we go out to different college campuses or even high schools, people think that the Department of Defense, that the military has banned transgender Americans from serving. Mm. Not true. Not true. There are more than 8,000 transgender service members in uniform today, and they will continue to serve. In fact, the new policy stipulates that gender identity cannot be used as a criteria in removing a service member from the military. All right. So, so that's a misconception there. This policy, it was, this was called originally called the Mattis policy because it was instituted under Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, obviously a Marine general, and it was focused strictly on equitable medical standards uh, to serve in combat. And so, you know, really that was the, the, the primary focus. I can get into what that means in, in practical application. Uh, what I would say is that there are certain, um, there's, there's a medical treatment associated with gender dysphoria as a condition and, as, and associated with the transition from in, in between genders. Mm -hmm. The concern is that that limits a soldier's ability to deploy, to train. It limits where the soldier can go uh, for, for an extended period of time, up to two years. And so we need everybody to be able to fight and that's what this policy is based on. So, it's, so you're arguing that it is it is a it, it is a practical it is a practical issue, but it is not a it is not a ban. Um, the one of the problems, of course, and this uh, I'll ask this, and then I want to go to Vanessa to talk about reparations. But first, the the problem is is one can argue that it is it is merely a matter of of medical 
equity. But if somebody is simply not able to continue being who they are without a particular medical intervention, um, is it is it really fair to say that it's not a ban? Yeah, I mean that's and, and so somebody at uh, a high school student asked me that in, in Pittsburgh. So it's a great mm-hmm. a great question. The the only response I, I, that I had that I is, is the that I gave this this so uh, female student is the one I'll give you now is that military service is not for everybody. There's a long list of medical conditions that disqualify a citizen from from serving. You know, mm-hmm. um, my daughter has asthma; she can never serve in the military. If you have type one diabetes, poor hearing, now gender dysphoria is added to that list of conditions, not as a social judgment, but based on the treatment of gender dysphoria by the medical professionals mm. who inform this, the civilian medical community, and its its effectiveness on combat. Well, uh, we'll, we'll come we'll come back to that. But uh, Vanessa, I wanted to go to you because the you know Sam brought it up and uh, it, it it lingers over this that the one of the advantages that the military has had is that it can make policy decisions. It can be a kind of of social laboratory. So the army can integrate before the. Uh, the United States as a whole uh, can integrate because it's possible to make policy that then comes down uh, and is immediately uh, uh, applicable. But the problem for African-American soldiers is just because the military has been uh, integrated does not mean that uh, that all of the uh, social and historical uh, wounds have been healed or have been dealt with. So how do we deal with this question of of reparations, um, both as a as a broader American societal issue, but also when it comes to dealing with African Americans within within the armed forces, what what you know what does it mean to talk about reparations in that context, and what can be done uh, within the military to act as for the military to continue to to serve its function as a kind of of, uh, of thought and action leader when it comes to uh, creating greater social cohesion. So I think what's interesting about African-Americans in uniform is that the military has always served as kind of a vehicle for freedom for for us. It's unlike people who um, may have, um, you know, gender or, um, you know, a person's sexual identity or their gender identity. The military, since its founding of America, has been a a vehicle for freedom for Black people. And so we're kind of like a a separate people in that regard, not not better, not worse, not inferior, not superior, but we are a different people in that regard because the country had specific laws that prevented our humanity to be on the forefront. And so when you look at the history of Black Ameri- of African Americans in the country, it has been one of one step forward and two steps back. Mm-hmm. And so serving in the uni- in in the military today, it's it's fine for me to serve in the military, but one of the things that is a little bit frustrating is when you find out that a lot of the studies that needed to be done to ensure that there was full integration of blacks in uniform, a lot of that was put aside to the study for for the sake of of gender studies in the military. So we knew that we integrated blacks into the military, but it needed to be further looked at. It needed to be further observed. But instead of doing that, you know, society was kind of like 
not fully informed about what does this look like because universities, the media, nobody ever questioned this after the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. And so we put all of that aside to the study of gender issues, which is unfortunate because even today, the discussion of and, and reparations, and I'll get to that in a moment, but just the whole integration of Blacks in the, in, into the military, it needed to not just be done and then we kind of like wash our hands and then we go off and do our own business. Mm-hmm. No, this has been a 400-year issue in the country. And just because you decide to integrate a group of people, you need to give it more than just 40 to 50 years to to look at it. It needs to be an ongoing discussion. And so the discussion about Blacks in uniform, what does that also look like, you know, when they have to do things like serve at bases, where the installation might be named for a Confederate officer, for instance. For instance. Um, exactly. It's that whole racial wallpapering that still exists. And so at some point that that needs to be discussed. And so reparations is, is a form of, of course, correcting for past wrongs. But one of the things that I will say that I think a lot of Black Americans have used the military for is, is a vehicle for freedom first. Well, and but and then this is the central paradox, right? Because on the one hand, the story with that the military tells uh, about itself and that is told about the military is that inter- that integration, uh, uh, the going back to Truman's decisions in 1948, that that integration of the armed forces was a a successful policy and has created a situation where African Americans have been able to serve. Uh, at an equal level with with white officers, with white with white soldiers, white service members, and yet uh, we we so in the one hand, right, we do talk about it as though it is an accomplishment, right? You know, check that box; that box has been done, um, and that's why when we talk about incur, uh, integrating. Uh, other Americans who have also felt separate from the rest of society and felt discriminated against, that we say, well, we should be able to do for them what Truman was able to do for African-Americans in 1948. But if we recognize that even for African-Americans, even with the policy changes, that the uh, full, let's say, you know, complete integration or a complete sense of, of, uh, of equality might still be elusive. What does that should that make us uh, uh, sort of more aware of how difficult these things are? Does that make us less hopeful? Um, so I'm thinking, going back to you, Sam, right? Uh, that so we've we've moved beyond "don't ask, don't tell," um, but we still have this. There is still a this longer term question of you know how does the how how do the services feel about their LBGT LBGTQ uh, uh, soldiers uh, and service members? Should these people feel as though Things will continue to get better, or do we? How do we imagine the integration as a as a process rather than a single accomplishment? What do you think about that, Sam? So, Ron, good question. If I can just back up for a, a quick moment. So, Please. these three topics that we're talking about: transgender, diversity, and inclusion of LGBT military members, and reparations. Um, I think it's important to, to acknowledge these are hot, controversial topics Indeed. that a lot of people have emotional and perspectives on, but I think it's valuable that we're actually talking about these, right? Mm -hmm. It it is interesting to hear these perspectives because that's what we need to do 
and, you know, I argue as a society and in the military is to talk about these and to learn from each other. So we are we are truly better together. And I know it's 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 a slogan, but when we're not excluded or secluded, but included mm-hmm. and we have the power you know, of, of leveraging all of that capability, we, we just can do so much. But specifically to your question, I think what's important is what does the military represent? Because this, you know, th- this discussion is about um, military and society. The military represents and we exist to serve the American people, to defend the nation, to protect, you know, vital national interest and to fulfill our national military responsibilities. And so we should reflect the so- society we protect. And these three topics that we're talking about uh, gets to that you know why we why we exist or what do we represent and so there is there are strategic implications to all three of these these topics and policies um so specifically you ask do lgbtq members feel more included or do they feel more valued based on don't ask don't tell being repealed i would say that i can't speak for all of them um but i would say yes and no and I think that there are some areas where they feel more um, included and allowed to be themselves. Um, but there's others that I think that they're they're still being discriminated against. They still can't be um, themselves. They still worry about, you know, am I less than because I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't have, I'm not married. I don't have two kids. I don't have the white picket fence. Do I have to work harder um, to prove myself? And there's a lot of that that's out there when you talk about these populations who are, who are struggling to, 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 you know, to, to prove themselves. And so it brings up a lot of things of how do we, how do we work through that? And as military leaders, I think it's about being compassionate, about being understanding, being firm and being fair. Um, But if we truly want to move to, uh, a policy that is inclusive, I think we got to think about how do we do that best? And, you know, I gave the example of the voice, but that that is truly a blind mm-hmm. judgment. It is not about a picture. It is not about what you look like. It is truly about what skills, abilities, and capabilities that you have. And we need those individuals, all those individuals who have the skills, potential, and abilities to serve. Um, mm-hmm. Because we've we need those it's all volunteer force and i think we we need more folks who have diversity well good and I'm, you 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 said the magic word they're all volunteer force and and joe i want to turn back to you based on something that you said earlier right this is one of the challenges right we want a military that reflects our society. But because we have an all-volunteer force, um, that means that the military is made up of the people who choose to serve in it. And then, so that's already, sort of a, we'll put it to, to way, that's already one filter that reduces the size of the population doing it. And then, of course, we have uh, standards that have to be met. You, Joe, you mentioned asthma, for example, or type 1 diabetes. Now, uh, Sam's comment that if as long as people meet those standards and as long as people choose to volunteer, then there are, there are other factors that should not impede people's membership in the force. But how do we how do we, uh, in, in an all-volunteer force, how do we encourage the creation of the most diverse possible force in order to reflect the diverse society that that force is supposed to defend? What do you think about that, Joe? So, you know, I'm a bit of an amateur historian, and this, what you're describing, what Sam is talking about, is always been, it is today, it always has been a leadership problem. Mm. This is leadership. And it's leadership at, at the extreme element, extreme echelon. So leadership at the top of the army and then leadership at the bottom of the army are primarily where you address and solve this problem historically. You know, the army 
has always been that the purpose of the army is to kill our nation's enemies efficiently and in large numbers. Larger than that, the army is a national institution for this country that points the way towards a greater society, towards improved technology, towards increased integration. It always has this, been this way. You know, a lot of people don't know that the army was integrated almost a year before President Truman signed Executive Order 9981. Mm -hmm. So the, the army forced integration onto President Truman, who was very wary of it. And the army has always been a social force for progression and for pointing to the rest of society. And that, that will continue. And, um, you know, it's an important role. But how do you address that? You address that through through leadership. Mm -hmm. And that means the leadership has to recognize exactly what you said, right, Joe, that that the army does have a social function, because I know there is a tendency, certainly among, I don't, uh, among people who talk about the military, I won't put any words in the mouth of military leadership. But when these social questions or questions of diversity come up, you'll have people say, hey, man, that's not that's not our job. Our job is to is to know how to, as you say, kill the enemy in sufficient numbers. And yet, the army does have, and the, the mil and all of the armed forces, they do have a an important social function in the way that they create opportunities, in the way that they can uh, that they uh, present an image to the rest of the country. Um, and so, it's important for the leadership and for the rank and file to see that. So, going back to you, Vanessa, right? This this issue of how overtly the uh, the armed forces are willing to embrace their social responsibility. Do you see any change over time in the way that the forces have embraced that responsibility? I do. I think that as it relates to Black Americans, and again, I, I have to make sure that there's an important distinction here. Um, because when I talk about Black Americans, I'm specifically speaking about the ones who are foundational to the country, mm -hmm. um, not the ones who later decided to immigrate to America and be part of America. I'm talking about the ones who've been here since its foundation, who have fought in each one of the nation's wars, who were brought through chattel slavery, who went through Reconstruction, Jim Crow. That's the specific group I'm talking about. So what happens sometimes is society will allow for an immigrant Black person to come to America, and this person will proceed up the ranks or proceed up to um, a certain um, echelon within, let's say, corporate America or whatever, and America looks and it says, oh, wow, look at this Black person right here and all that this person has achieved. Mm -hmm. but you have to also ask sometimes, well, who exactly is that Black person? And that's not me saying, okay, I'm just trying to be exclusionary to these others that have come to America, but it's important to make that distinction because there was very specific laws that were put in place that kept a specific group of people behind. Mm -hmm. So you have to actually study that group of people and study how have they made progressions? How have they been able to achieve wealth and to serve in the nation? All of that. It's, it's so much more complex than just to say, oh, look, we've got all these Black people in the military. We must be doing much better. That's right. you have to ask that second and third level question. Is that somebody who's actually been foundational to the country or not? 
I mean, and this, uh, this gets to an interesting issue about how, uh, success is a moving target when it comes to, uh, inclusion, when it comes to diversity and Sam, I've, I've been thinking, you know, we're, uh, I'm, I'm a little older than you are, I think. Uh, but, I, but I, I, I can remember in the early 1990s that the move to don't ask, don't tell was considered to be was well was in a certain way was progress because it was a it was at least a step away from uh the 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 downright ban on on uh LG, lgbt uh, off, uh soldiers serving in the military and yet it was a compromise and it was a compromise that couldn't last forever and in retrospect of course don't act don't tell was spoken of within 20 years was spoken of as though it was the same as a ban on being gay in the military. When, when it, when it was initially uh, pushed through, don't ask, don't tell as a policy was considered to be a, a, a progressive change. And I guess that's an interesting issue for the services and for service members to figure out um, not only sort of what kinds of, of policies towards inclusion can be developed, but when do we feel as though we've reached enough inclusion? Or is it just that we have to understand that this is a constantly moving process? And once again, we're not just looking for a single finish line on inclusion. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's never gonna we're, we're never gonna have a time where we're included enough, and so we mm-hmm. don't just stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think about it when you mentioned "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." It was a policy that permitted gay Americans to serve in the military as long as they remain closeted. Right. So you could argue, you know, was it was an evolution, but it, it was a compromise, as you mentioned. And I think it was a compromise that um, the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff reached with uh, the President Clinton at the time uh, as the compromise, because mm-hmm. it was one of the campaign promises as the policy. But they, he didn't think that uh, the military was ready for it. And so that was the compromise is introduce this. They could still serve. We could still recruit. We could still leverage. Um, but they had to remain, um, you know, basically closeted. So that that brought up some other things about what are our morals, what are our character, what are our values, um, and that's what I struggled with. Um, mm-hmm. Well, but I believed in the mission more than I believed in trying to, you know, um, identify with my orientation because um, I'm a lot as an LGBT mem- military member. I'm more than just my orientation; it just right. happens to be a part of who I am. Um, and so when you talk about important part of who you are though, right. And that's the, that's the problem too, right? We, we don't want people to serve and have to deny themselves while they serve our country. Very true. And like with anything, we all have inherent, inherent biases. And so one of mine obviously is I'm trying to, you know, I never wanted, and, and I think, you know, I was offered, you know, I think five or six years ago to try to be a spokesman for an organization to try to be at the forefront of this cause. And it's not something I wanted to do because I wasn't mature enough to realize that I didn't think that I, I could be a value. But then as I grew, um, and mature a little bit more, I realize there is something when we get in certain positions that we have a responsibility to speak for those who can't speak for themselves and to stand up for what we think uh, is right. But we got to do it in a, in a, in a, you know, a manner that is efficient and effective to, to achieve policy change. So I, I, you know, there has been a lot of increased representation in the military in the past decade and strides are still being made to improve acceptance and integration. Um, in, in the health and, L- and LGBT service members, but I still think we have a long way to go. Uh, I don't think we should stop. Um, and because there's a lot of talent that's still out there that uh, we, we should be able to recruit linguists, you know, who still are struggling with, is the military culture still for me? What does it bring? And one of my friends recently told me that 
I think this is truly a generational thing um, because you look at my current generation, I just turned 42, um, is we, we were okay with this. Okay. There were some things that were you know uncomfortable, but I think the generation behind us, for example, the cadets we have in West Point or the kids now, this is what they grew up in. So this is not as much of an issue for them. But you look 10 years older than me in the 50s and 60s, they, this is still an evolution. And I think that's okay because policies do need to evolve. That's good. Evolution. Well, and, and, and this brings us, you know, we've had a, we've had a very rich conversation. We're, we're coming right about to the end of it for now, but I, uh, I wanted to ask each of you, uh, for your sort of final perspectives is when you look to the future, what do you see as the, uh, as the, the challenges and opportunities that are coming on questions of diversity and inclusion? I want to start with you, Joe. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities. I think that the, the ideas that Sam is talking about are going to increase. What I found is, is on, in, just in this program alone is that it's the younger soldiers and the ROTC cadets that we meet that understand the transgender issue in, in a way greater than the, the folks at the top of the Department of Defense. Mm. You know, they understand it. They accept it. They, they're no issue with it. Um, and so I think, you know, that's going to continue to increase. I also think you see a lot of new technology, new ideas out there, social media. There's a lot of discussion out there. There's a lot of, of you know, societies moving very quickly. And that's always been part of the all-volunteer force. You know, when you look at when we went to an all-volunteer force after Vietnam, there was a, a social pact that the Army would provide. You know, the, the country would give its voluntarily give its young men and young women, and, and the Army would provide upward social mobility opportunities, values, education, job skills. And these young men and women would, would infuse the Army with their values and their cultures and, and what they've brought in from, from their, their upbringings. And so I think you're really going to see that you know, here in the next 20 years. Great. Uh, Vianessa, a final thought on the, the things to come? Yeah, I would just like to say that I I want to remain hopeful that as military members that we can be encouraged to speak about issues as it relates to not only Black people in the military services, but also societal issues that are also occurring. A lot of times we're not always encouraged to speak about those things because there's a feeling that it's going to make a, a group of people mad. It's going to make people feel like, you know, oh, you're you're trying to make me feel shameful about things that happened so long ago. And it makes me kind of concerned that not a lot of people know a lot about their country. And so it it's it's important that we discuss this. We discuss it honestly, the impacts to Black Americans, specifically those who were disenfranchised due to the color of their skin, and be and, and have these conversations forcefully and openly. Great. And Sam, a, a, a final thought? I would just say that, um, you know, I think all of our discussions really be, is based on we want to be judged and evaluated and selected based on our qualifications, not mm -hmm. our orientation, our, our race or our ethnicity. And I think, you know, the army specifically is trying to move in that direction with the, you know, talent management task force. Um, we don't get everything right, but you know, we are trying and we can, we're learning from um, our past. And I think no matter what you talk about, whether it's, you know, transgender or reparation reparations um, or being an LGBT member, I, I think, you know, 
if we're allowed to be our authentic self, it adds to the value as a military member and specifically as a leader. And that's the important part is we need to continue to have these discussions and understand one another. Amen. All right. Well, that is great. And you know, even though this particular conversation has to come to an end, these conversations will continue. And uh, I'm speaking on behalf of everybody from here at uh, the War Room and at A Better Peace. I want to thank Colonel Joe Bacino, Colonel Vanessa Vargas, Colonel Sam Smith for joining us today for this conversation. Thanks to the three of you. And thanks, and thanks to all of you out there for listening in on this. Please send us your comments on this program and all of our programs uh, and any suggestions for the future. We are always interested in hearing from you um, as the conversation continues here uh, at A Better Peace. But uh, until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.